Well, friends, it is a new month, and I am going to start a new series this week. It is called Start to Follow, Come, Rest, and Give. And that's going to play out in Come to Jesus, Rest with Jesus, Give Jesus Away. And what we're going to be talking about is the word discipleship. Now, discipleship is is one of those kind of Christianese sort of words where all the people who are in the know know what it means or think that they know what it means, and those who are not in the know are clearly new to church and need to get with the program. So I don't like using those kind of words that exclude people. I'd rather use words that invite people to participate in what's going on. And when it comes to discipleship, that's really important. Because oftentimes people think that discipleship is all about going to Bible study or being in a Sunday school class. Well, that's part of it, and that's a good discipline to have. But discipleship, at its most very basic level, is about following Jesus. Evangelism is sharing the story of Jesus. Discipleship is following Jesus. If you look on the front cover of your bulletin, you're going to see a picture of what is called the Ely Cross. The Ely Cross is actually about three stories high. It's on the inside of a cathedral, and it shows a journey. That's, that's why it's twisted the way that it is. It shows the journey to the cross. And what you can't see, what you can't see in that picture is that the very top of this enormous cross is a little tiny crucifix about this big. That's why you can't see it in the picture. And it is there to remind people that this is the path that Jesus walked. And discipleship is about walking that path with Jesus. So that's what we're going to study this morning. We're going to do so by looking at the gospel according to Matthew chapter 7. Normally, I invite you to follow along with me in your pew Bible, and certainly you could do that, but you need to know that I'm going to use the message translation this week. That's a modern English translation written by Eugene Peterson. So you can follow along if you would like, but it's not going to be the exact same translation that is in your pew Bible. Let me pray for us, and we will study the word together. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. My friend Allison, who I have told you a little bit about before, is an architect here locally. She is highly skilled. She's highly sought after to draw up the plans for a very, very specific type of building. She creates homes on the sand. Most of her life work is beachfront property out on Anna Maria Island. So I asked her recently to to give me a list. I just wanted a short little list of the top five challenges to building houses upon the sand. And she immediately wrote me back and said, only five? Only five? So a few days later, here I am expecting to get the Letterman list, and she writes back this novel that includes things that I would have never dreamed of. It turns out that the federal government requires that homes out there, and I'm talking about the ones that are right on the beach, they have to be a certain height above the ground so that when the tides come in, there's plenty of space underneath the building for the water to flow, which is great. So we're going to start building at a certain height. But then the local government has said that a building can only be so tall. 
And it's not to obstruct the skyline. So you've got the building starting here, and then it has to come down here. And that changes how Allison designs houses. And then you have um, environmental law legislation that has been enacted that prohibits an extensive amount of light in, in a building that is along the way of the beach. Why? Because of the turtles. We have to watch out for the turtles. So that's a problem. And then apparently there's some kind of issue about air conditioning and where the air conditioning has to go. And that impacts where the bedroom goes, something about where everybody's head is when they're sleeping so as not to get overcome when the water comes in. It's very long and it's very complicated. And if you want to read it, it will put you to sleep. And she goes on and she talks about all of these crazy things. And then the last thing that she says, she says, one of the biggest challenges that she has is budget versus the client's dreams versus reality. See, there's many things in life that we hope and we dream and we perceive that actually turn out very differently when they have to face reality. Often the first time that, that we really get a taste of Jesus, that, that first holy fire moment when it hits us that we are so loved and we're so adored by the Savior of the world, we start getting these grand ideas and, and, and designs in our head about what life with Jesus is going to look like. And we don't often, if ever, consider the cost of the time that we're going to have to put in. There is nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with mountaintop experiences of Jesus. They ignite and they encourage and they renew us. But the reality, the real reality is that most of us do not live on the mountaintop. So what would it look like then for us to follow Jesus as a regular practice? That's what Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter 7. I'm starting in verse 13. Jesus speaking. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life to God is vigorous, and it requires total attention. Now, I want you to picture Jesus saying those words as he strolls down the self-help, religion, spirituality aisle of the books a million. It's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to just buy a book and then you lay it out on your coffee table for everybody to see. People have been doing that with the Bible for years. But the way to life, the way to life which is found in Christ alone is a vigorous pursuit. And it's something that requires total attention. My brother grew up swimming with Olympian Michael Phelps. And the difference between the two of them, besides 22 Olympic medals, is that that for Phelps, swimming was his whole life. Everything he ate, everything he did, everything he wore was in pursuit of his life goal of swimming. Now, my brother also trained very hard, but not seven days a week, and not to the point where it impacted the rest of his life. For Phelps, swimming is life. And for my brother, it was just a part. Jesus is life. He is the way to life. And there is no such thing as a part-time Jesus. The mountaintop experience, that's a sprint. Following Jesus is a marathon, or as Eugene Peterson puts it, a long obedience in the same direction. 
And it's not like there's not going to be plenty of people along the way, some of them who probably wrote those books that we were just talking about, who are more than willing to tell you about their version of Jesus and how you too, with 10 simple steps and $29.99, can love Jesus the way that they love Jesus. Jesus says, be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. See, when you follow Jesus, when you follow Jesus, you're going to find a great consistency of attitude, of integrity, of demeanor. Who Jesus was when he stood before the 5,000 is the same Jesus who sat by the woman at the well in Samaria. He wasn't a salesman who changed around his pitch to sell his stuff, mostly because he wasn't selling anything. He was giving away grace, and he was passing out mercy, and he was gifting love. There was no force or coercion or, or manipulation or abuse of the guilt of the people. The challenge, though, is, is that we're not really wired for that kind of thing. We're all about instructions and directions, and, and our particular tribe is really in love with this whole idea of doing everything decently and in order. So we pride ourselves, and it is a pride, brothers and sisters, we pride ourselves on knowing what to do at the right time, when to say certain things, getting everything just so, because that's how it's supposed to be. And we leave so little room, so little room for chaos or for messiness. Over the course of my ministry life, I've served communion hundreds, if not thousands of times. And and if we're going to be honest with each other, and I I hope that we are, i got to confess to you that I do not have recollection of every single one of those times. But there is one that I remember clearly. It was Christmas Eve. This was in the church that I served prior to here. Church is packed. It is a standing room only situation. And I'm going through the motions of communion. I've broken the bread and I've poured the cup and I've said the words and I've announced that these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And so then the servers come forward. And I immediately start passing out trays of grape juice. And the servers look a little bit hesitant, but I'm the pastor. There's something about the robe that makes everybody think that I know what I'm doing. And they took the trays, and and off they went. When everybody had their little cup, like the little one that you're about to have, I triumphantly stood up and proclaimed, This is the bread of life, broken for you. Somehow, I completely derailed. And and I couldn't explain it because I knew the words, and I've said those words a million times, and I know the motion. This is not my first go-around at the rodeo. And yet, for the life of me, I could not get this right. And here it is, the biggest worship night of the entire year. Here's the good news for those of us who are committed to getting everything just right. Jesus says, knowing the correct password, saying, Master, Master, for for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. 
I can see it now, says Jesus, the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preach the message, we bash those demons, and our God-sponsored projects had everyone in town talking. See, friends, it's not about the right words, it's about the right heart. The obedient heart that follows hard after the heart of God. But let's be honest here. We like the words a whole lot better than the actions because the words are so much easier than a serious obedience. We can totally memorize Micah 6.8, although I realized after the first two services that I might be the only one that has memorized Micah 6.8. But basically what it says is, what does the Lord require of you? The Lord requires of you to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And so many people seem to know that verse, and yet so many people seem not to want to do anything about it. There's a difference between knowing and going out and living it. Recently, uh, I was in a meeting with a group of elders from several churches, and one of them said to me, very, very seriously, how, how can we make our community understand how important our church is to the larger community. Which immediately to me sounds like he's looking for a sales pitch. So we probed that question a little bit more, and I said, well, what do you mean make them understand? And he said, well, you know, our church gives thousands and thousands of dollars to different places in this community, and people in the community need to know that. They need to know that. And so here's your pastor, and I'm I'm fumbling around. I'm trying to come up with the right words for this. And one of our own elders, an elder right here in this church, one of my proudest moments in ministry, one of our own elders says, the community will know how important the church is to them only when they see the church living out the will of God in the community. Because it's not about the church. It's about God. And if we have to make a public announcement so that everyone is clear about who's responsible for our God-sponsored project, we probably have a good indicator that our hearts are not really focused on the heart of Christ. Jesus addressed this in in verse 23. And do you know what I'm going to say to all those people? All those people with their words and their projects? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. So we have this tension. We have this tension between doing and being, especially when you have things like the Great Commission. Go, make, baptize, teach. These are all active things that Jesus left for us to do. And yet the one that we tend to overlook, the one that we tend to ignore, is remember. Remember, I am with you always until the end of the age. That's where a life of discipleship starts. Remember, it's not about you. It's not about your programs or your mission efforts. It's about Jesus. And Jesus' first instructions, his first instructions in the gospel were, follow me. Follow me. Where I go, you go. Where I stay, you stay. And sometimes we forget that our job is to follow. And when we forget, we get so lost. Most of you know about my son, Peter. You have been such a huge and significant blessing in his little life. 
And Sung and I are forever grateful for your prayers and your giftedness towards him. For those of you that don't know, my son Peter is five. He's going to be six next week, and he'll tell you that if you ask him. For the most part, he is like every other five-year-old boy on the planet. He has the attention span of a gnat, the energy of a thousand monkeys. But he also has a sensory integration disorder. Which means that when you take Peter to a place like Bush Gardens, which we just did yesterday, while he loves it, he loves being there, he has a really hard time staying focused on the main thing. And usually the main thing in places like that is walking from place to place and standing in line. So we learned from a very early age from a speech therapist that when we need to give Peter directions, we have to get down on his level We have to look at him in the eyes and we have to do this little motion where we like scoop up his eyes and we bring him back to us and we say, Peter, eyes watching, eyes watching. So what will happen is we'll be standing there in line for a ride, um, which always has a line. And we start out at the end of the line and we start off with Peter, eyes watching. And we explain how the line works and we're going to wait our turn and how we don't fight with people in the line. And Peter gets it. He gets it. But two minutes later, we have to repeat it again. And, and he gets it again. And then two minutes later, we do the same thing. And then we get about four or five rotations into it, and Peter will scream, Okay, Mom, I get it! <clears throat> but he doesn't. And two minutes later, we start again. Peter, eyes watching. Jesus says, follow me. And we say, okay, and we start to follow, and, and then we start to wander off, and Jesus says, follow me. And we say, okay, and we start to follow, and then we start to wander off, and Jesus says, follow me. And we say, okay, we get it. We got it. And two minutes later, Jesus says, follow me. Discipleship is practices that are visited and revisited and revisited again over a lifetime with intentionality and purpose. And we have to keep coming back to them because for as much as we'd like to think that we've got it, it is so easy for us to lose it. Jesus is getting ready to finish out his instructions and he points out that all of these things that he just said, he's at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, these are not footnotes. These are not the PS to the end of a letter. These are the places where you start. This is not the place where you finish. He says, These words I speak to you, these are not incidental additions to your life. These are not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. No, no. These are the foundational words. Words for you to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, then you are like the smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. That rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing, nothing moved that house because it was fixed to the rock. So what you build in discipleship is a house that stands firm. Even when the directions of the winds of mission, of service, of leadership, of vision of the church start to change or or they get tossed up like a hurricane, it may not be the glamorous stuff of life. But when the rain pours down and the rivers flood and you or a loved one gets a diagnosis that you were not expecting, and your life changes in a major way, or your kids do something that breaks your heart, or you lose your house and you lose your health, and the tornado hits. The foundation 
built on the rock will not be moved. To God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen.